morning we began a new series in Matthew's Gospel. And actually, that wasn't an entirely new series because we began here in chapter 8. We first started looking at Matthew's Gospel here at Kirkpatrick Memorial three years ago, not long after I arrived in the church. I looked up my records this week, and it turns out I preached my first sermon on Matthew's Gospel in December of 2003, the 14th of December. So in three years, I've managed to get to chapter 8. That's not bad. I did a few rough calculations uh, this week uh, as we set off into this next series. If we keep going at this rate, we can expect to have Matthew's Gospel finished in nine years. So that'll be round about 2016 sometime. Stick with it, it'll be good. Believe me. What have we learned so far in Matthew's Gospel? Let me, in three or four minutes, try and recap those seven chapters uh, which we have dealt with in the last three years in a couple of different series. In chapter one, by the way, it'd be useful to flick with me here as you go. So go back to chapter one and we'll just literally turn those couple of pages in the next couple of minutes. Chapter one begins with the family tree of Jesus Christ. And we were amazed when we look at it to find that it was full of all sorts of people. Jesus, it turns out, has his fair share of skeletons in the closet. Among the names, we recount incidents of rape, prostitution, and adultery, among other things. But when we thought about that, it turned out that there's something quite appropriate about that. This new baby that we're being told of here in chapter 1, this, whose family tree is being held up before us, is to be called Jesus which means God saves because he will save his people from their sins, we're told. In chapter 2, we discover that this baby boy is going to divide the world in two. Some people hate him. They're not just slightly against him, they hate him. And they'd have done away with him if they possibly could. King Herod is the most notable example. The people who share power with him are in in league with them. But some people, in contrast, most notably the wise men, love him. And they'll travel great distances to come and worship him. I'm I'm not sure if you're clear about this, but by the time we get to chapter 3, 30 years have elapsed. Okay, so there's quite a a time leap between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, appears in the scene to prepare the way for Jesus' public ministry. He baptizes Jesus, and we're told of that wonderful incident where the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove. A voice speaks from heaven and says, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. So God confirms that this Jesus of Nazareth is indeed his Son. Before Jesus begins his public ministry, we read in chapter 4 of his temptation, three times Satan comes to him and three times he tempts him to use his power other than in the way God has called him to use it. Three times Jesus refuses. And then he begins to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. 
Jesus begins to preach and he begins to call disciples. People who are going to be his apprentices. People who are going to learn from him as they watch him to see what he does and as they listen to what he says. And then we find the one other thing that he does, the other significant thing, is he begins to heal people wherever he finds them. That in a nutshell is chapters 1 to 4, and we dealt with that in a series three years ago. More recently, in the autumn of 2005, we looked at chapters 5 to 7. And those chapters really just present a chunk of Jesus' teaching. They're presented to us in the form of one continuous sermon. And if you know your Bible well, you'll maybe know that this is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5 to 7. In this sermon, Jesus teaches all sorts of different things, but really one thing. He teaches what life is like in the kingdom of God. He says, first of all, everyone's welcome in the kingdom, including the poor in spirit and those who mourn. They're blessed because they're welcome in the kingdom of God. Then he tells us about a new kind of goodness that people in the kingdom possess. It's not a kind of goodness that's focused on trying to do good or trying to look good. It's a kind of goodness that's focused on becoming a person who is good right in the core of their being. As God changes us from the inside out, kingdom people, we discover, leave behind hypocrisy. They value the right things. They don't worry about the wrong things. That's just a wee sample, if you're a member, of some of the things that Jesus taught his disciples in that wonderful sermon. And as we noticed last week, Matthew tells us in chapter 7, verse 28, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And we, we thought about that and how rare that is, that people hear a preacher and go out saying, wow, wasn't that brilliant? We've never heard the like of it. That's what people said about Jesus. So after these previous two series in the first seven chapters, let's return today to Matthew's gospel. And over the next few Sunday mornings, we'll continue with chapters 8 to 10. Last week, we looked at the first half of chapter 8. If you remember, we discovered that there was a lot of stuff there about Jesus healing people. Turn back for one second again to chapter 4, verse 23. Chapter 4, verse 23. Before Matthew tells us in detail about Jesus' ministry, he tells us in summary about the whole of it in one verse. He says, Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Preaching and healing, says Matthew. That's what Jesus did. And in our last series, Sermon on the Mount, the focus is entirely on preaching. Here's what Jesus preached. Now, in chapters 8 and 9, we're going to learn a lot more about Jesus healing ministry. So let's pick up today chapter 8, verse 18. 
You'll notice that the crowds are still with Jesus. They were with Jesus at the start of chapter 8. And really it's no wonder. The people loved Jesus' teaching, we've been told. But they also loved his healing. They loved the idea that being around Jesus, you might see something incredible. And maybe closer to home, they loved the idea that they or someone whom they loved could be healed. So at this point in his ministry, Jesus is extremely popular. He had people around him all the time. Well, on this particular occasion, we find that Jesus wants to get away from it all. He wants to get away from the crowds. So we find that he tells his disciples to cross over to the other side of the lake. Now, I think that's, that in itself is worth noticing for a second. A good reminder to those of us who are involved deeply and, and often with people that there are times when we shouldn't be with people. If you want to be good with people, there need to be times when you aren't with people to be refreshed and replenished. Even Jesus needs that time away from the crowds. Now, I'm not sure if it's supposed to be ironic, but here's Jesus with one foot in the boat trying to get away. And a guy comes chasing along after him, a teacher of the law, and he says, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Do you see that? Jesus is dying to get away, get a moment's peace, and this guy's after him. Jesus, can I come with you? Maybe you'd overheard Jesus' command to his disciples to cross the sea, maybe not. But either way, this guy wants to be with Jesus. He wants to be Jesus' disciples. That's brilliant. So far, so good. Jesus wants disciples. We've already noticed that in Matthew's gospel. And and we saw it in chapter 4 when he calls Peter and Andrew and James and John. He says, come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Despite this guy's bad timing, This is a very promising scenario developing here on the edge of Lake Galilee. But Jesus doesn't seem completely enthusiastic. There's no welcome aboard, big lad, join us. You're welcome, part of the team. There's no, no, there's none of that. Jesus seems hesitant. And why is that? Well, it could be that Jesus is is wary of a volunteer here. What what this man's doing is totally within the culture of his times. If you wanted to become a disciple of a particular teacher, you went to them and you volunteered. You applied to join them and to be their disciple. So what this man's doing here is absolutely fine within his own culture. But that's not how Jesus worked. Jesus chooses his own disciples. The initiative is always with Jesus. In John 15, he tells his disciples plainly, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Friends, that's that's important for any one of us who is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus chooses us. If we imagine 
that we have chosen Jesus. Then just as quickly as we, we think we have chosen him, we imagine we can choose to stop following him. But everything's different whenever we know that we're chosen by Jesus. It changes entirely how we view ourselves. We see that the initiative lies with him. We see what a huge privilege ours is to follow him. And we see that along with all the disciples who have ever gone before us, he won't let us down. He won't ever leave us. He's chosen us. Isn't that great? You didn't choose me, says Jesus. I chose you. So instead of welcoming this volunteer with open arms, Jesus simply tells him that life as a disciple is no walk in the park. He puts it, though, in, in beautiful poetry. He says, foxes of holes, the birds of the air of nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There's no doubt Jesus is overstating the case here. He's doing that because he wants to, to make his point forcefully. Jesus isn't homeless. We know that from chapter 4, verse 13. We're told there that Jesus lives in Capernaum. So long as he's ministering in Galilee, that's his base. And we can only imagine that he has a home there. Up until he began his public ministry, we can only imagine that he lived in a home in Nazareth. The point that Jesus is making here, though, is that his life isn't a settled down sort of a life. He's not living the life that so many of us crave for, that we long for. And again, this is important for disciples of Jesus to grasp. Whenever we look at Jesus' life in its entirety, we discover that he seems to do without a lot of the things that we can't imagine living without. Jesus spends a lot of time if he has a home, he spends a lot of time away from home, relying on the hospitality of his friends. He was never married. He never reached middle age. He seems to not have carried any money of his own, just to have relied on money that people gave to him and his followers. He doesn't seem to have had a whole lot of privacy, unless he got up early and went into the hills in his own. He lived his, out, his life without privacy. What we discover is that Jesus lived a whole and a full and perfect life without a lot of the things that you and I take for granted. We can't imagine being happy living the kind of life that Jesus lived. But Jesus shows us that the best things in life, rich relationships with others and a, a deep relationship with God, don't depend on our circumstances and on our material possessions. I think in our heart of hearts, we know this. But how hard it is to live it. We still imagine that our happiness depends on what we have.
How did this teacher of the law respond to Jesus? We don't know. We just don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us. Instead, he tells us in verse 21 about another disciple who comes to Jesus and says to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. If Jesus' first reply seemed abrupt, this one is verging on crass insensitivity. Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Like the teacher of the law, this man isn't asking for anything very unusual. He's not being selfish or or overstating the, the case here. He's acting entirely within his culture. Just as you and I would expect to have the right to bury a parent of ours, this man could have expected that right too. Actually, in his case, the law required that he would bury his father. Not to bury his father would be to go against God's command to honor his parents. And in the light of that, Jesus' command here seems very strange. The commentators, when you you read about this passage, they give all sorts of explanations. But in the end, they all agree about this. They say that Jesus is using shock tactics to impress on his disciples that nothing is more important than following him. There's no other responsibility in your life, Jesus says, that's more important than, than me and my call on your life. Nothing can come before your allegiance to me. Not your hobby, not your job, not your friends, and not even your family. When we understand what Jesus is trying to do here, we should probably look at verse 22 one last time. If we took this statement literally, I think we'd be making as big a mistake as we would if we we plucked our eye out if it caused us to sin or chopped our arm off if it led us into sin. Do you remember that's what Jesus suggests in chapter 5 using similar shock tactics? No, Jesus doesn't intend us either to pluck out our eye or to chop out our arm or not to bury our parents. That's not what he's suggesting. The important thing here is to understand the principle. Jesus' call is radical. It's urgent. It doesn't jostle for position with other calls on our lives. It's number one. That's what Jesus is making us realize here. It's worth pausing here, I think, for a moment before we race on. There are lots of people in our congregation here this morning who want to follow Jesus. I know that because I can sense it when I'm talking to you. I know it from conversations that we've had. When we read passages like this, we become more aware, though, of of what's involved, of what the whole story is. When I read a passage like this, I can't help but feel like I've approached Jesus, I've said, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you, and he says, Christoph, that's brilliant. Now let's read the small print. And he says to me, Christoph, 
Do you have your heart set on a comfortable, settled kind of a life? Well, if you have, I can't and won't guarantee you that. He says to me, Christoph, do you have priorities that in your heart of hearts you hold dearer than your walk with me? I'll be your only priority from here on in. Instead of seeing the world through your, the eyes of your culture and the eyes of the people around you, will you see it my way? I think that's the kind of thing Jesus is saying here to those who wish to follow him. Do you still want to follow? Do you still want to go with Jesus wherever he goes? Do you want to obey him, whatever he calls you to do? Or is this teaching this morning making you unsure? We need to pray, each one of us, that the desire that we have to to start with Jesus and to be with him will be matched by a desire to go with him and to stay with him. I'd hoped this morning to deal with the whole of the passage that Catherine read for us a moment ago, but as you can see, that's just not going to be possible. We'll look at the incident of Jesus calming the storm next week. I want to jump over it and look quickly at the last incident of this passage. In chapter 28, we discover that Jesus finally did get away from Capernaum. He gets across Galilee and he lands on the other side. And again, I don't know if there's supposed to be irony here. Do you remember, Jesus is trying to get a bit of peace, trying to get away from the crowds. And when he finally lands on the other shore, he's greeted by two demon-possessed men. How seriously do you take the presence, the real presence of evil in the world? How open are you to the idea that a person could be possessed by an evil spirit? In this passage, we discover that Jesus takes evil seriously and is open to demon possession in other people. It's fascinating. Keep your eyes open anytime demons meet Jesus. They always seem to know so much more about what's going on than the people do. And the same is the case here. These demons recognize Jesus immediately. They call him the Son of God. And they're the first people in Matthew's gospel to do so explicitly. They not only know that he's the Son of God, but they know that he's more powerful than they are. Look at what they say. What do you want with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us? before the appointed time. They know who Jesus is. They know the power that he has over them. And they know that one day, Jesus is going to judge them. But they also know that that time hasn't come yet. What they want to know here is, Jesus, what are you going to do with us today, right now? And actually, it looks like they already have a fair idea. Jesus is going to drive them out. Jesus, who can heal physical illness, is going to show that he can heal any 
kind of illness, even spiritual demon possession. He's going to set these two miserable souls free, and the demons know that. They say, if you drive us out, send us into that herd of pigs over there. When the healing comes in this case, it's really dramatic. Jesus shows complete authority over the demons. And Matthew shows us that because Jesus says simply one word. Go. The demons leave the two men. They enter the pigs. And it seems that the demon possession has an equally violent effect on the pigs as it had on the two men. The pigs now are uncontrollable. They stampede over the edge of a cliff and into the lake and they drown. And as I said a moment ago, it's a very dramatic scene. But it's a scene that Matthew decides not to stick with. Instead, he wants to tell us of what happens a mile and a half away. He wants to tell us about the response of the people in the town. You see, the pig herds not surprisingly, they run straight to town and they tell the story. Now, they tell the whole story. They tell about the pigs rushing into the sea. But they also tell the other half of the story. They tell about two men healed. And just very quickly about these pigs. In a community like that, if there's a large herd of pigs, you're probably looking at the economy of the whole village or at least a substantial part of it. These pigs were the economy of that village, or or at least made up a good part of it. So losing the pig herd would hit the people in the pocket. So, So what we can say here is that the healing of these two men comes at a cost. And the question we're faced with in the rest of this scenario, is this community willing to pay the cost of seeing these two men healed? Apparently not. In verse 34, we read that the whole town went out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. In effect, these people are saying, yes, Jesus, come, heal people but not if it's going to cost us anything. If it's going to cost us anything, get lost. Go. We don't want you if you're going to make any demands on us. Verses 18 to 22, I think, present individuals with the cost of following Jesus. I think this last short story presents communities with the cost of following Jesus. Are we a community that values property more than people? Are we more worried from time to time about what something might cost us than of how God could use it to change the lives of people who desperately need his touch? Will we subtly push Jesus out if we discover that he he wants us to be more interested in people than in property? 
Friends, Jesus does in this passage what he does time and time again. He turns value systems upside down. He does it for individuals, but also for communities. Today, as we've spent some time with Jesus, we have discovered that it's a costly business to follow him. He challenges our desire for security. He challenges all our priorities. He wants to rewrite the things that are important for our community. If we get involved with him, he's going to change the character of our lives and of this church. Are we willing for that? Or is the cost too much? Let's pray. Father God, we're saddened when we see in your word accounts of of individual people who maybe aren't willing to, to pay the cost of following Jesus. Lord, we're disturbed when we see a whole community that sends Jesus away because they can't bear to have him around and all that might be involved with that. Lord, thank you for showing us in your word this morning the cost of following Jesus. And Lord, by your spirit, prompt us and stir us to count that cost for ourselves and to count that cost for this community here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. And Lord, make us, in the end, people who are willing to say yes having counted the cost, we will follow. Amen.